Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Table Work, How New Plays Get Made. My name is Amber Bradshaw, and I am a new play dramaturg, arts administrator, and educator. On this podcast, we ask some questions. What is new play dramaturgy, and how do we do it? What do artists want to see in the future of the American theater? And where are we failing in the creative process, and how can we solve these concerns? This podcast is brought to you by Working Title Playwrights, a new play incubator and service organization based in Atlanta, Georgia, in which I serve as the managing artistic director. For more about WTP and me, check out WorkingTitlePlaywrights.com. That's, that's my advice to PWIs that are trying to do the work. Crawl. Crawl first. And just be good at that. Get good at that. And then maybe organization, maybe maybe you'd be trusted enough or maybe you get the expertise enough that the next time that or when you're ready, that it won't be disastrous and that you won't perpetuate cycles of hurt and pain and inequity. I would love to start today by introducing y'all to our guest, Jamil Jude. Welcome, Jamil. So good to have you. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. <laughs> so Jamil is a director, producer, playwright, and dramaturg, and is the artistic director at Kenny Leon's True Colors Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, as well as the co-founder of the New Griots Festival. He is a former participant in the Leadership U one-on-one program funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and administered by the Theater Communications Group. The program provided him a residency at Park Square Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he worked as the Artistic Programming Associate. Prior to that, he served as the National New Play Network producer-in-residence at Mixed Blood Theater Company. Before joining the staff at Mixed Blood, Jamil served as a new play-producing fellow at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C., His interest in social justice and theater continues to drive his work, including co-founding Color People's Theater in Washington, D.C. As a playwright, Jamil was the 2013-2014 Jerome Many Voices mentee at the Playwright Center, where he remains an affiliated writer. He has been commissioned by Climb Theater and has been produced by Climb and by the D.C. Black Theater Festival. So Jamil and I met in 2018, and I believe it was when you began your transition into being the artistic director of True Colors Theater in Atlanta. Uh, Tell us a little bit about True Colors and the work you are doing there. At the beginning of my career, I decided that I wanted to be the lead curator of a culturally relevant arts institution. And I didn't really know what any of those words truly meant at the time. But when I got to True Colors in 2017 and walking out on stage and seeing the audience, I realized I'd been told a lie. And that I had actually found the place. I have, I'm a dream job. I'm the lead curator of a culturally relevant arts organization. So um, True Colors, founded in 2002, uh, 2003. This is our 20th anniversary season, which is crazy. Um, we are a Black theater located in the Black Mecca of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, founded uh, by an amazing American theater storyteller, Kenny Leon and Jane Bishop, uh, who worked as in the management positions at the Alliance Theater, the organization was intended to try to change the way the American theater produced work. Oftentimes, uh, and what we do, centers a white narrative, either explicitly or implicitly, and then tries to diversify from the fringes. True Colors at its uh, founding was intended to center a black narrative and then use that as a launching point uh, to introduce conversations about all different cultures. I mean, you know, people of color have been doing it forever, but like, we have learned that in the superhero world before there was more diversity in superheroes that we can still see ourselves inside of that and i think we talk about it the same way through specificity anybody can see themselves in the stories that we're telling um and that's how we try to move forward i have a love for new plays like you mentioned so i've had and i've brought a focus on contemporary black writers i had true colors but um, we represent and attempt to try to address the entire history of the work of uh, Black artists. You know, Black theater has been in America for over 100 years, um, not just the Black arts movement, but going back to the African Grove Theater uh, in New York. Um, so we try to represent the full gamut of that history um, and do it right now through contemporary Black plays. But you know, I, I love 
black classics as well. So uh, True Colors is the place where people can go. And we always talk about it's the place to go to celebrate black storytelling. Mm. Love that. I also love just mentioning the ancestry and the, the genealogy of, of black theater, which a lot of people, I think, fail to know anything about. So thank you for mentioning it. We talk about being a part of a continuum, not just a continuum of a national conversation around black theater. That's, yes, of course we are. But Atlanta has a beautiful history of mm. black theaters before. It's just us, Jumanji, just to name a few. Um, so we want to make sure that people recognize that we're part of that lineage as well and that True Colors rooted in Atlanta uh, in more ways than one. So one of the things I have seen you do a lot of work at, um, at True Colors is civic engagement, which I've talked about before in this podcast and something I think is really important, especially in the new play world where we're trying to like bring new stories to the stage, right? As opposed to things that people already are familiar with and might just naturally decide to see. And, you know, with, with your civic engagement at work, it's a lot of connecting community and bridging audiences to the work on stage. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so we call this program Connectivity. It's a larger umbrella term that we use for the work that thrives at the intersection of artistic excellence and civic engagement. Right there at that nexus, uh, we call that connectivity work, where we are, of course, as a theater company, we lead with artistic excellence, but um, I'm a firm believer that theater in the 21st century cannot be disconnected from community. Mm. There are so many competitive media that uh, is striving for the same eyes on that we're looking to. So what is bringing people to a specific location at a specific time uh, these days? And we know things like concerts, but also things like voting, right? Mm. So how can we make sure that what is artistically excellent, like a concert, potentially, or that inspires civic action, like voting, that True Colors can be right in the mix of that. Um, so our connectivity work led by an amazing, amazing producer named Brandel Jones. I would tell you all to hire him, but I want him to continue <laughs> to uh, at True Colors. Um, we go out and we try to find what are the plays, what are the themes that are on um, the work that we're discussing? How do we tease that out? And then what are the community organizations that are already doing that work and our forces combined can amplify it? And then also, where are those spaces that maybe theater hasn't connected with them before? How can we go and make authentic relationships with people centered around a desire to inspire civic action? And then, if, if and when they decide to remind them that we have a theatrical option for them, but the goal <laughs> is really just to engage with them about things that they're most concerned about. Mm. And then it, if and when you, you, know, you just extend the invitation, but that's not the expectation. And I mm. think that's been a lot of fun too, is to not go into a relationship expecting anything. Now you go in with your interest. Uh, Seema Sueco, uh, who's a really brilliant um, theater mind and civic partner who uses the arts as a way to inspire civic discourse. Uh, she has this concept called consensus organizing, and she goes in and says, whenever you're creating an authentic relationship with community members, you want to start with your mutual self-interest, because when you hide that, that's when people feel like they've been hoodwinked. Mm -hmm. um, so we go and we start conversations with our mutual interests, with our self-interest, and we say, hey, we have this play, and we'd love for you to see it. That's where we want to start the conversation, but we also have all these other things that we want to do, and we'd love to hear from you, and then let's find some commonality. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of different programs that do this kind of connectivity work. I know one of them is you do panels, right? And yeah. you do like uh, community discussions. Yeah. So we have panel conversations are um, the way in which we enter into that. We call it true talks. And those are discussions where we are uh, finding people. We just recently did a new play, world premiere play by Rachel Lynette called Good Bad People. And yeah. we kind of talked about uh, the ways in which race, class, justice uh, all intersect especially in the lives of middle-class and upper-middle-class Black people. So we put a panel together in some place as diverse as Atlanta, where you have the AUC and you also have one of the largest poverty gaps um, in the country. You have uh, millionaires in athletics and entrepreneurship um, mm -hmm. and mu music. Uh, you have people and you have a, a rising house, unhoused population, right? So Atlanta right. is really 
a focus of that, especially when you start thinking about justice and cop city and all these other things. So we put a panel mm-hmm. together of people who intersect all of those different things and talked about it. Um, we did that. It was called True Talks. We did it at a Black-owned, the largest Black-owned arts gallery here in the Southeast. So all of those things intersecting, right? Because class, where does class fall into um, art gallery and ownership? So those are the types of things that we're teasing out. We also have partnerships with uh, MARTA, which is the public transportation system here in Atlanta. Um, we do partnerships with uh, the Atlanta Opera and do concerts together. We just did a partnership with um, the Black Legacy Project. And you know they're, they're moving around the country trying to find artists to remix songs, to talk a little bit about what's happening in our world and use music um, as a place to heal. That's an organization out of Music in Common. So, you know, it, it looks like any number of things. And again, I'm just really proud of Brando Jones and the way in which he's taken that uh, idea. I, <laughs> I love my work at True Color because I often get to be an idea guy. I get to put right. something in the space and say, hey, you all, I want to thrive at the intersection of artistic excellence and civic engagement. I want to call it connectivity. I want mm-hmm. to create authentic partnerships. And then I get to set the plan and the vision for it. And then someone else takes it and expands it wider, mm-hmm. wider than my, you know, the dreams that I had for it initially. And that's what's happening right now. Just one of many areas of true colors that that happened. I love that. But it does start with your vision. Yeah, gotta give you credit for that. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) and translating it too, right? Yeah, you know. And what was the name of the gallery you mentioned? Oh, Zucot Arts Gallery. Great. Zucot Z U C O T Art Gallery. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I love that that um, that Marta program, especially. uh, Really interesting. I love that as an idea and a, a community partnership and engagement. And I've also seen a lot of theaters partnering. Um, of late, and I love the partnership with the opera, especially with the um, way opera has just completely been reinvigorated in the last several years. How did you How did you partner with them? Did you do a production together, or how did that work? Yeah, a, a couple of different ways. Um, yeah, we've done a production together uh, where we paired spoken word artists and monologues with opera songs, arias from uh, various operas performed by um, Black. Uh, opera singers here in the area and nationally. Uh, that's just one of the ways in which we've come together. We've uh, shown up at their events, they've supported ours. So it's a good partnership. That sounds very cool. I love that idea. Well, so let's talk about one of the new exciting programs, exciting projects that you've been working on called The Drinking Gourd. Yeah. Black Writers at Work. Yeah, tell me about this. It's so amazing. Yeah, um, this is one of, you know, again, one of those things where I you know, come out, hey, hey, here's this vision, and then lots of people take it. Um, so big shout out to uh, our producer and I guess a friend of Working Title Playwrights, Kayla Parker, doing some really great work here as a new play um, playwright and director yeah. out here in Atlanta. Absolutely. Um, but uh, The Drinking Gourd, Black Writers at Work, is a program, True Colors, and six other theaters across the nation, Black theaters across the nation, that's dedicated to the co-commissioned, co-development, and co-world premiere of new plays by Black writers and producing them at Black theaters. Um, our desire here is to fill a gap in the American theater where all too often Black playwrights are finding development and hopefully production opportunities at predominantly white institutions. But what we hear from them often, and Tori Sampson, a Black playwright, um, wrote an article pre-pandemic about her experience at a predominantly white institution where not only did she feel like she had to translate the work to fit the aesthetic taste of this predominantly white institution and the producers, but she also experienced microaggressions, not just from the staff, but also from the audience. So what is the experience of a writer that's trying to bring their work to stage in hopes that a producer then likes it enough to give them a world premiere opportunity, but it's a work that actually gets to stage in the very few slots that are available to these writers if it doesn't actually represent the initial impulse of the artist that created it, is it real? Is it valid? Is it truthful? Is it authentic? And regardless of that answer, what happens if it doesn't get picked up again and it gets canned by the reviewers? And now that playwright wears the stain of failed shows and it makes it less likely for the next producer to then go and produce the work. 
we call it premieritis sometimes, and it, it definitely affects black and brown playwrights. So our attempt here is to resource other black theaters at a level in which we can give playwrights the type of commission money that is commiserate to some experiences that they may get out other places, but to build a network that treats development differently. Each of these organizations, we all have what we're calling our own special sauce. You know, maybe, <laughs> um, Hattie Lou down in Memphis uh, has a really great acting pool uh, that they like to bring into the work. And National Black Theater in Harlem has access to so many different things. But Barbara Ann Tier, who founded National Black Theater, and Jonathan McCrory and Shade uh, Lithcott, who will run it now, have their own uh, way of approaching artist care. Uh, JAG Productions uh, out of Vermont has a lot of space. Uh, and just mm. a lot of space for artists to go and just be black and free, mm. you know. Um, the Hansberry Project in Seattle has their own, you know, flavor that they put on uh, new work development and the relationships they built with some other theaters out there, just, just to name a couple of organizations we've been working with. But um, now, an artist and their work, we get to place them with a company based specifically on the need of the playwright. And now they get touched by so many different organizations working in tandem so that when the work is ready for production, it's not just going to get a single production. It's going to get a rolling world premiere at these various cities, at these various, um, you know, with their own audiences. But the audiences that are ready to experience Black work where the playwright doesn't have to go in and try to lift the culture and be artistic and do the community engagement. We say, hey, we've got this. We have built a legacy of telling black stories mm. in all these theaters across the nation. Mm -hmm. We just want you to go and deliver the best way you can and be nurtured in the best ways in which you believe that we can. Uh, so we're excited for it. We just um, selected our first two uh, commissioned artists. Uh, I'm really excited to announce. Um, I guess I'm announcing it right here. I, I, <laughs> we haven't officially done the press release. But, um, it'll be fine. Uh, Pulitzer Prize winning James Imes is going to be one of the first playwrights mm. that we commissioned. And then another uh, emerging artist, Gethsemane Heron, is going to be our second playwright. So uh, finishing commission for James Imes and then uh, um, uh, from Soup to Nuts um, production uh, from uh, Gethsemane Heron. So, uh, yeah, that's Fantastic. with National Black Theater, JAG, uh, out of Vermont, um, Hattie Lou and Memphis Ensemble out of Houston. Hansberry Project out of Seattle, True Colors Theater here in Atlanta, and Penumbra Theater out of St. Paul, Minnesota. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, thank you. We're excited. It's going to be great. And that's just the beginning of it. Like, there are, you know, the more we talk about it, the more black theaters I want to get involved. Um, you know, uh, sure, at some point, there's always a conversation around new play funding, but uh, it's a good conversation for funders. Mm -hmm. uh, they love the opportunity to on multiple theaters with the stroke of one check. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I think we're trying to build a structure that can sustain itself and revolutionize the way uh, the American theater um, interacts with new black work. Well, that's really amazing. And I just want to give kudos, like how much work and collaboration and effort that that like must have required just incredible all those different organizations and it's um it's really cool to see because i feel like um we really can't do this work alone you know especially when people are always singing this the sad song of how expensive it is right yeah. um which to me just continues to manifest the same issues to be honest so i feel like um you know, you're diving right into the solution in just like a such a practical and efficient and also thoughtful way. Yeah, I want to give a big shout out again to Valerie Curtis Newton, who uh, runs the Hansberry Project out of Seattle. Um, she was a she said yes to me early uh, when we tried to pilot uh, this program uh, in the pandemic. And again, another shout out to Kayla Parker who's doing a great job in producing. And also you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get, you know, I get enough credit. I get to have the title as artistic director. Yes, I, to, I know. Uh, talk I know. About the, the company, I get to be on your podcast. So, um, I, I definitely uh, there's enough there's enough sunshine on my behind. So. 
Oh, I know. But you know, you know, I love to give shout outs to, um, to people doing a lot of really good work in new play development, you know, cause it is, it is risky work. It takes building blocks. It takes a lot of things that I think some people just don't really want to mess with at all. So <laughs> I'm always really appreciative of that. So, yeah, thank you. Cause I mean, you, um, you know, some of our, some of our playwrights, um, are people we both work with. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. I love that about Atlanta and about the American theater. It really is a small world, right? <laughs> That's absurd. That's, <laughs> That's really cool. So, okay. So I have one more question about that, mm -hmm. that project before we move on. Yeah, I, I'll talk about it. <laughs> to limit yourself to one question. I love, I love the drinking, but I just love, I love what we're doing. There's some other programs too um, that are um, happening in the black theater space. Uh, the North Carolina Black Rep uh, has a similar program uh, that they've, um, uh, worked with a couple of theaters that are part of the Drinking Goya, some other ones, and you know, you know, it, for me, it's like rising tides lift all boats, right? Like mm. there are a myriad—I was going to say hundreds, it's probably hundreds—of new play festivals across the country, right? So we don't have to, as Black artists, we don't have to feel any type of guilt or shame, or oh, we should coalesce all of the things. Because everyone else is doing it their own way and serving different needs and things like that. I just think that, you know, a, a history of racism has just uh, encouraged people. Well, if we all band together our limited resources, then we would be stronger. And that's not untrue, but it also can um, take away some of the individuality uh, organizations and the thing I love about the drinking board is that we are encouraging the individuality of each partner organization in the development process of the work as opposed to consolidation and trying to make new play development a factory and a facsimile of every single program that's mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to do that with this program. Mm -hmm. But you had a question. That's just me right now. <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, my question was sort of a bigger dramaturgical question, which is how did the conversation about this project begin? Yeah. Like, What was the gestation and how did it sort of lift off? Because people love to talk about their ideas, but making them actually happen is the true magic of our work, I think. And that's sometimes the part that people don't get to. So I like to talk about it um, as something that you can sort of look at as here's a possibility of something that yeah. could become a really incredible idea that does actually man itself into existence. Yeah, I, I, I love that question. Thank you for that. Um, just gives me an opportunity to just kind of think back. Uh, some of the fun about being an artist director would be to go be a visionary. I will say that this program... I pulled from a couple different things. The first thing, um, Letitia Ellison, who used to be the development director at True Colors, uh, when it was announced that I'd be transitioning from a social arts director to artist director, she really pushed me and encouraged me to start thinking about what I wanted True Colors to look like in the future. Mm -hmm. And True Colors also had received some money from the Bloomberg Foundation, and we were working with a couple of um, advisors administratively to help us think about how you project some long-term sustainability onto the work that you're doing. This was all 2018, so pre-pandemic. And that talked about long-range artistic planning. So here's Letitia's in my ear about, okay, what type of company do you want your colors to be? We're getting all this information about long-term artistic planning and how do you plan out for three seasons at a time and all this other stuff. Um, so at the moment, then, uh, we challenged ourselves in 2018 and said, well, what type of theater company do we want to be in 2020? <laughs> so we put up on a whiteboard in the office here in 2018, said, uh, long range planning, the goal for 2020. And we put all these things out there. We want to be a $2 million organization by then. Uh, we wanted to um, create a new work development program. Mm -hmm. And that new work program was what I talked about with that fill in the void in the American theater in the waste place with development. 
Similarly, I'm a child of the National Nuclear Network, which I know is a lot of love on your podcast. And I had always been excited by the rolling world premiere model. And then some work and research that I'd done in prior um, spaces around Black theater movements and how plays moved throughout the country, and still their plays that are on like you know, what's kind of uh, maybe pejoratively known as the urban theater market, how those plays kind of move. And it's always been like a, a network, a connection uh, of how things can spread. So all these things are playing into my mind. And then 2020 actually happens, and we're in the midst of a pandemic. And I'm sitting at home, um, <laughs> twiddling my thumbs, trying to keep a theater company alive, mm. uh, trying to find my own peace inside of a racial reckoning, but also feeling really inspired by. Um, some community work that I had been a part of and that I was seeing out there. So then these ideas just kind of came together in my head. And I remember calling out Valerie and a couple of other uh, producers and saying, go with me on this idea. What if we commissioned playwrights and we shared them um, and we co-developed their work and in an attempt to try to inspire co-productions or multiple productions of writer's work. And again, to Valerie's credit, she's been in since 2020. Um, other people have come in along the way. Um, but like, that's kind of like the path through it. And, you know, it's not revolutionary, and it's not a, something that someone hasn't ever thought of again. I think it's revolutionary in the dogged way in which we're saying we aren't going to let it go. Mm. Um, so, yeah. It's also highly collaborative. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that's, you know, I feel like this industry will burn you out. Um, mm. Daniel Proxonicle, who was a mentor of mine, still is a mentor of mine, but he was the first person to hire me uh, as a professional in the casting department at Arena Stage. He would often say, you know, it's not a question of if you're going to burn out, it's just like when you're going to burn out, how you, how you get back. And I mean, you know, I think there's a world in which it's like, oh, that's you know, some negative stuff, and do we have to be like that? But um, there's a reality that burnout exists. And then in 2015, um, a brother named Paul Robinson was teaching out at the Shannon Institute in Minnesota. And he talked about, you know, we get burnt out when we're in misalignment with our values. And when that happens, because it's going to happen, because we grow and we change. Our circumstances change. We have to be around nutritious people. Mm. I said all that as a preamble to say that collaboration helps you in all of those facets. One, it can lighten the load and allows many hands to make life work. But it also, whenever you get burnt out, oftentimes those collaborators are the nutritious people reminding you why you got into this thing in the first place. Mm -hmm. So that maybe I'm not the cheerleader, but um, Chris at Penumbra can be the cheerleader for the thing. Or um, Jarvis can, or Rachel can down at Ensemble, mm -hmm. right? Like Sade can at National Black Theater. Someone else can then pick up that torch until I get an opportunity to rest and restore myself. And then those nutritious people who, you know, there's a torchbearer, but then there's six other organizations or however many people that are involved in it that can also be doing the nurturing and helping me get back up while someone else is out there running their race. So um, mm -hmm. I love collaboration. It's part of the reason why uh, I love making theater. Um, but it's also the thing that will sustain us all being a community. So what do you find are the most challenging aspects of your work? You know, I know that's a big question. Yeah. Um, you know, what are some of the pain points for you achieving your goals? Um, I think the first is just bandwidth. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I'm a highly ambitious person. And if I could, I would do all the things that I love to do all the damn time. And it's also the mental challenge of, for me, I've gotten everywhere I've gotten to up until this point, or maybe some point before, just like hard work. I was never the best athlete, but I worked super hard at it, right? Um, and then I had such a learning curve 
getting into the American theater because I, I really didn't do any, anything um, with regards to theater in high school, stumbled upon it in college, and then did it mostly without a real formal education in the theater. So like all the catch up that I tried to do, reading, seeing, taking things in, discussing, breaking it down, asking questions, challenging it all, um, kind of got through hard work, right? Of mm-hmm. course, there's some meritocracy and there's a lot of luck in there and there's some cronyism and nepotism and all the ways in which people get opportunity. But a bulk of it was hard work, right? Yeah. Um, so I still have in my brain that, well, if I just stay up later, work harder, multitask more, um, that I can get all of it done. Mm-hmm. Two kids later, <laughs> an artistic director position, trying to hold it down. The bulk of my artistic director position has been inside of the pandemic. Um, I'm near 90% of it. A freelance career that I'm thankful for. Like, it's nearly impossible to try to be present for all of it. Um, so I say bandwidth. And also, because I learned that I can't do it all, means I had to do a really great job of hiring good people that can take the vision and run with it. The thing that when you hire good people is that there are always people looking for good people. <laughs> so sometimes, especially at a theater company the size of ours, we lose good people mm. because they have great opportunities that allow them to get to the ambition that they have for themselves. Mm -hmm. So that becomes a challenge. I keep on talking about theater companies our size, and I recognize that as a $2 million organization, there are some organizations that will look like and say, y'all are huge. Mm. Right. And this is not a, like, it's not a good or bad thing, but like there are several predominantly white institutions that are operating with budgets five times our size, 10 times our size. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are theater companies out here that are 30, 60 million dollars here in the American theater, right? So mm-hmm. um, when that is part of the competition that you're mm-hmm. up against for resources, playwrights, administrators, directors, designers, all the like, um, dramaturgs, like, that can become a challenge, mm. especially when you start talking about funding and the way that funding is distributed here. Um, the American theater philanthropic community is trying to do work to um, create some equity in funding, but it's still far behind, right? Yeah. Um, and the nonprofit structure still is constricting. Um, Organizations of color, but specifically black theaters, are have been really faced by a lot of um, those issues. Um, systemically and just historically, racist tropes have affected. Like, oh, well, you know, black organizations can't manage money well. It's like, well, if you're trying to do all this work on five nickels, it's hard to manage money well. Mm-hmm. Um, nonprofit is just a hard thing in general. And also, a lot of that isn't true. Like, we manage money well. We just don't have a whole lot of it. Um, you know, you're also looking at um, how wealth has been distributed in this company, how people, what people choose to do with their um, discretionary funds if they have any. Mm. Um, most white organizations, white theaters, get 60% of their contributed revenue from individuals. For black organizations, it's 6%. That means that you're looking now for 94% of your contributed revenue from foundations, grants, um, government entities, corporations that all are fickle. Individuals give more consistently, it's the stats prove that, and um, they do it um, without restriction. But when you go to government grants or foundation grants, it's often for project support, project-specific support. Mm-hmm. So you're really limited in what you are able to offer and what you're able to use that money for. So like those are just some of the things that uh, make the work 
uh, more difficult. Um, you know, of course, if we teased out that more, I can come up with a variety of other things. <laughs> yeah, it, it, just working backwards, it's, it's funding. It's the brain drain that often happens when you lose good staff people. Mm-hmm. And then it's on my own bandwidth, too. Yeah, and I hear... Um it's just, it's, it's really that the statistics are, are pretty intense. Um, and it, it makes me think, you know, when people say, when people say things aren't possible, you know, I would say the, the way that, um, black theaters have persevered in this country, despite these kinds of challenges is amazing. So I just want to first say that because to me that, that is, the work and love of, you know, a lot of people over a long time. I just hope that, you know, we've talked, you've mentioned that funders are working towards doing better, but I think um, it needs to happen faster and, um, and they need to keep prioritizing uh, companies that have not been funded. Yeah. I think transformational gifts, transformational gifts, especially general operating revenue, right? Asking more, organizations, more philanthropic organizations to give, you know, 10, 20% of a theater company's annual budget and give them that a year for three, a period of three years. Mm-hmm. That's the type of like, you know, transformational work that would go you know, a very long way for us. If we got, you know, $400,000 a year every year for three years from a funder that says, hey, I'm going to give you $1.2 million, right? Um, which is in some ways less money than they have given other, you know, flagship regional mm-hmm. theaters for one grant. We're saying spread that out over three years for us and give it to us in the general operating thing and just watch what we're able to produce. Mm-hmm. And, um, we're thankful that there are organizations that are stepping up and listening to us and willing to support us in that kind of way. So I, this is oftentimes I get on these spaces and I'm making it a, a push for black theater companies. And I use the specificity of true colors and we are in alignment with that. We are definitely in a continuum. And also I also recognize the immense level of privilege that we have, mm-hmm. that we have been given funding from various sources over the course of our 20 years mm. that um, I think we show up and do good work for that. But there are also so many people who show up and do good work who do not get uh, the mm. same type of recognition that we get financially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I hear you. There's, there's never enough money to go around, but hopefully we can figure out maybe some ways to make it easier to access. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's some people that are working on that. Giving Gap, Heather Infantry is doing yes. a lot of great work. Shout out um, to Heather Infantry. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and all the people doing this work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really pushing our funders to make changes. It's been, it's been a pretty monumental movement. And, you know, in terms of that, what do you think, um, new play artists need from the American theater? What have you found that we can do better? Um, you know, I think we're trying to do it with the drinking cord. I think mm-hmm. we're trying to give new play artists a safe space to try it out, to try out all their ideas, get it down, be nurtured by them, have someone support them, have someone nurture them, have someone take them from the initial idea concept through whatever development process they feel like is best for the work that they're creating, and then have the temerity to say, and now we want to produce it, mm-hmm. and now we want to put it up, and we don't want to just put it up once. We want to give you multiple shots at this, and we want you to produce under different circumstances. So we want to have you produce at True Colors, but we also want you to produce at Hattieville, which is smaller, and in Memphis, which is a different community. Then we want you to take it to Penumbra and St. Paul with a different legacy and a different relationship to their community. Then we want you to take it to MBT. Then we want you, you know, like, so we want you to, we want artists, and I think what artists need are people believing in them, giving them space and opportunity to try and invent and create then more people saying yes and come do it here take multiple shots at it 
get it right the way you want it to, and then go make the next thing. And we'll be right here waiting. Mm. That final step is a key one that we haven't talked as much about in a podcast is, is that not only is it several opportunities to have a production, um, different productions, but you know, this opportunity to continue to revise and rework with a different community of a different audience. Like that's just so exciting. You know, with the national new play network, we get three of those. Right. And so the idea of there being three to four to five to six, oh my gosh, that is just, that is an incredible opportunity. And so I love that more opportunities like that. And, um, and also opportunities that like align, right? Um, one thing you said that really popped for me was these theater companies have built the blocks toward to the community, have built the bridge already. You know, they have a history of serving this audience that this play is written for and therefore is a good partner, yeah. right? Like that's, to me, that's just logic. Yeah. But I think that we sometimes get, we miss that. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, one of those things that gets lost a lot in translation. And if people would just collaborate more effectively or consider consulting, hiring the right people, uh, restaffing, um, offering opportunities to new artists, you know, opening up, opening up who they consider and what they consider to be collaborative partners. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, what can these PWIs do to make it better? But a lot of it to me is the time building the blocks to the community and, and not just being presentational, but being active in change. You know, I think the same thing, and um, this is probably where I get canceled from the American theater, but like it is often told to organizations of color and smaller organizations, you're not ready for that type of thing, right? Like, oh, we need to see three to five years of production history before you're eligible for a grant. Mm-hmm. Or we need to, you don't have the capacity. We feel like you don't have the capacity in order to manage this grant program or this thing or whatever, whatever, whatever. But then predominantly white institutions, large organizations uh, included in that, get, you know, like, oh, it's all right. You've never done this before, but skip to the front of the line. It's like, wait a minute. They haven't put a female, a black female playwright on stage in 15 years, but yet you're going to resource them with a extra week of rehearsal process through this grant process and you're going to do audience engagement collaboration funds so that they can go out and find the audience for this play mm-hmm. when they've never done it before. Like, what? why don't they have to crawl before they walk when you tell everybody else that they have to crawl before they walk? So the thing that I would mm-hmm. say to predominantly white institutions who are trying to get into this working, oh, we want to do it. Like, well, why don't you just crawl first? Like, mm-hmm. you don't actually have to do the production. You don't get to do the production. Other people may let you and you're going to just take that. But like, you want to do the work that these other companies have been doing because you want to change your relationship to equity, but you're doing it in an extremely inequitable way. Um, And like that level of fairness, I don't think it, I'll discuss that to change four different words. Like, I'm not that interested in fairness. Fairness is utopian, and maybe we, I know we don't live in it because Donald Trump is president. We, it's not about that. It is, it is about the audacity of some folks and organizations and producers that feel like the rules don't apply to them, even when they are trying to respond to community need that has said, oh, your organizations have hurt us. And then those organizations that perpetuate that hurt say, okay, well, uh, we're going to stop hurting you by fast tracking a process that we don't have any understanding of how to do. So that would be my, that's, that's my advice to PWIs that are trying to do the work. Crawl. Crawl first. And just be good at that. Get good at that. 
And then maybe organization, maybe maybe you'd be trusted enough or maybe you get the expertise enough that the next time that or when you're ready, that it won't be disastrous and that you won't perpetuate cycles of hurt and pain and inequity that you've done when you know the Wallace Foundation gave organizations a whole bunch of money um, last at the end of the last century uh, to do this or the Ford Foundation when they started to help start the regional theater movement, you know, so. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's really wise. I think it, it, it kind of aligns with a lot of my discussion about um, in order to really serve artists, especially in the new play process, you just need a lot more time and a lot more thought. <laughs> just like, can we please think this through before we rush through everything and throw shit on stage that's not ready and exactly put playwrights in a position to not get a second production because this one did not go well for like all these different reasons that probably could have been avoided. Right. So yeah, I, I absolutely hear you. I think that's really wise. So best advice for new play artists. Advice that I would give to artists in general, um, I talk about artistic life cycles, and I think there are three phases of an artistic life cycle. And again, it's a cycle, so it's cyclical, right? Um, in that first phase, it's um, showcasing your skills. And you're really just trying to prove to yourself and to other people that you know how to do it. <laughs> and in that space, I tell people to say yes to learn. There's a second phase I think people evolve to, and um, that's where you're exploring your aesthetic. And in that space, I talk about say no to grow. Because when you're showcasing your skills, you want to just develop a broad skill set. But when you're exploring your aesthetic, you really want to deepen the things that you know how to do well and mm. get much, much better at it. Mm-hmm. Sure, at the beginning of my directing career, I was definitely down to do avant-garde and device work and all this other stuff. But once I really realized that I'm good at character dramas, um, then I just wanted to get really deep into that. How can I better communicate with actors? Mm-hmm. What are action verbs? How do I help structure plot? Um, if I'm doing new plays, how do I get better at new play dramaturgy? Right? Let's, how do I get? How do I deepen in my bag as opposed to adding a whole bunch of different bags? And then there's this final phase where you're sustaining your success. And I, I talk about that as artists in that space. They want to seek and share. They want to seek out what's best in the world and then they want to share with as many people as possible. So saying all that now, specifically to new play artists, I think you want to say yes to learn, like say yes to like and read everything, see everything that's out there as much as you can, then be critical of it, question it, challenge it, question the form, take a look at the form, rip it open, you know, analyze the director's choices after reading the script, Um, find ways to be a student of life and how it's reflected on the stages. Like, I think if you do that, then when you want to start playing with form, you may have something else underneath you or that you have more of a spark that's going to push you through the hard work of Facing the blank page, rewrites, having other people critique your work. Like that stuff is, Mm. it is difficult and it's enduring and it's toxic. It can be, it doesn't have to be. Um, So I'm hoping that that can help people along the way. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. And where can listeners connect with you and keep up with your work? Yeah, truecolorstheater.org is the website for True Colors. Check all of our stuff out there. Um, follow us on socials at, at True Colors Theater. Um, and then uh, for me, um, my website, jamiljude.com, um, and uh, at Mr. JD Jude on all the social platforms. Awesome. And you have a really cool production coming up. Uh, True Colors, do you not? Yes, I'm yes. excited about it. Yeah, you know, um, all this talk we talked about new plays and all these other things. Which is and now we're not talking about yeah, a new play, but, but uh, it's a good play. Yeah, but for our 20th anniversary, uh, True Colors, um, we have talked about last year, or this year, and next year, we've been talking about Sankofa, which is this West African Adinkra symbology, a uh, symbol. Um, well, it's a 
symbolic language of Dinkra symbols. Um, and this one specific symbol, that of saying Kofa, is of uh, mostly represented by this bird whose feet, feet are facing forward, but his head is looking back. Mm-hmm. And the symbol is used to mean uh, a return to retrieve, that in order to know where you're going, you gotta know where you come from, right, essentially. So as True Colors was facing our 20th anniversary, um, part of my, you know, what kind of company do we want to be in 2020? I started thinking about that concept of Sankofa and how can True Colors honor the past and recognize the continuum that we are part of and also prepare ourselves for a really exciting future. Uh, so season 20, our theme is reclaiming ours under the concept of Sankofa. And uh, True Colors, and I think maybe from 2005 to 2008, um, did these youth productions of The Wiz, which is an iconic Black um, musical, uh, a, a Black retelling of the Wizard of Oz story. Um, and I was in my office and I saw a poster board for it. And um, Hallie Bailey, who is the new Black mermaid, mm-hmm. um, she was in our productions of The Wiz. Her sister, no kidding. Her sister Chloe, who is Love a it. protege of Beyonce, was in it. Um, you know, Victor Jackson, who was an amazing performer based here out of Atlanta, among so many other people. Kenny Leon directed it. So, like, Part of True Colors' mm-hmm. legacy is The Wiz. Part of Black theater's legacy is The Wiz. There's so many artists, audience members' first introduction to mm-hmm. storytelling, theatrical storytelling, and then seeing the movie version of it. So we're excited to bring a very, very Atlanta version of The Wiz to town. We've been calling it Lemon Pepper, Lemon Pepper Wiz. Um, <laughs> Lemon Pepper Wings is so synonymous with Atlanta. Um, so we're excited. We're going to have that on stage in June. Um, and we can't wait. So it's, it's a love letter to the city of Atlanta mm. um, and uh, reminds people of just the continuum um, that Atlanta Theater is part of and True Colors is part of that. I love that. I didn't know uh, sort of the genealogy of the show and, and the theater. That's fantastic. And it is such a great show. Like, I think it's a great spring opener oh, yeah. and just great energy to it. And really been enjoying the costumes on Instagram that have been posted Thank and you. all the design stuff. It's really cool. Jared Barnes. Yeah. Her. Yeah. You have such a great staff over there. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jamil. Y'all, I am your host, Amber Bradshaw, and I will chat with you next time. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Table Work, How New Plays Get Made with Amber Bradshaw. This podcast was brought to you by Working Title Playwrights. If you like what you've heard today, support this podcast and all our initiatives by leaving us a review, following us, and or consider making a tax-deductible donation to Working Title Playwrights at www.workingtitleplaywrights.com. Table Work.